fall into the theology bit. Welcome back to The Theology Pit. This is theology out of Pittsburgh, not like a bottomless pit, where when you fall into a bottomless pit, you die of dehydration. Before you would die of starvation, I suppose. But this is a theological pit, and therefore, you're going to be well-fed, because when you go down into a pit, and there's actually something down there, there's treasures down there, stuff that, you know, you can really, really, really get into, because there's so much. Well, that's what this theological pit is. That's what we're attempting to do here at the Theology Pit. Of course, my name is Samson Kovach. I'm the host. I know I forget to say that every time, but uh, hopefully you know that by now. Uh, we're doing our series on salvation here in uh, in the Theology Pit, and I have no idea how long this is going to go. Um, I'm not sure about how much I have to... Well, I, it's like I sort of know how much I have to talk about, but getting it all down and discussing all of it and... Um, making it so that it's coherent so that people can understand and can follow um, that's what I am questioning on how long it's going to take um, here we are you know the ninth section of this the ninth episode the ninth in the in the series um, and we are discussing more about the uh, satisfaction view of the atonement um, also known as the sacramental uh, view of the atonement and I'm trying to do it as best I can from a Roman Catholic perspective. Um, as a Protestant, um, you know, I'm not a uh, Roman Catholic, um, but I'm trying to be ironic. I'm not trying to be pejorative with any of this stuff. And, you know, understanding the liturgy, understanding what's going on, understanding the why behind um, all that's happening, this is a big deal. Um, you know, this is... The, really the meat of the view itself because we're talking about a view in which God's grace is being given to us and this type of grace is not so much individual it's not as though God gives his grace to individuals individually he gives it to individuals communally um, and when we talk about the merits that Christ has earned and the way that they are distributed through the church and through the sacraments in particular, it's not an individual thing. Just like the liturgy is not an individual thing. You can't have liturgy by itself. And uh, that's what we're going to be discussing a lot of. All right, so... When I say you can't have the liturgy by yourself and you can't do this stuff by yourself, what am I talking about? What do I mean? Well, if you remember from the last pit, uh, we were talking a lot about the uh, Passover celebration. We were in the uh, book of Exodus in the Torah, and we were talking about what is meant by that. And if you recall how much of that imagery was communal, okay, you couldn't be by yourself. And, and do it because you had to eat a lamb and it had to be eaten. And it was to the point where if your family was too small, well, then you were to get with another family and you would share a uh, Paschal lamb, a Passover lamb. Um, if your family was large, then you would have, you know, your own lamb. And some families were probably big enough that they might have two, maybe even three lambs that would have to come in, depending on 
you know, how many people, how many portions were going out, how many people were eating it. Everything that's being done, everything that we talked about is completely a communal aspect. You don't have any of this idea of this individualistic um, concept. It seems that God is indicating that he saves communally. So theologically, what's that mean for us? Um, and what we've been talking about uh, our, our discussions about the application of the atonement of Christ and the fact that it has to be done in such a way for us to be able to logically agree with it theologically. Um, we started out this entire series talking about faith and the fides qua creditor and the fides quae creditor. Um, the fides qua creditor is faith uh, by which we believe. And the fides qua creditor is the faith in which we believe, the faith which we confess. And a lot of that sounded individualistic. It didn't sound communally. It didn't sound governmentally in, in a sense. And we, we touched on the governmental understanding of the atonement. Um, a lot of this comes into play here. So with it being communal, then this act of worship and of sacrifice has to be communal also. It, it, that, it seems that that's what it's, it's pushing towards. Now, when we were talking about, you know, justification and what we're doing and death passing over us and the whole Passover thing, think about what the implications are of all that stuff that we've been talking about. Here we seem to have an understanding of, number one, um, we do have some type of choice, which eliminates the whole um, concept of that we don't have free will. It would seem that we have free will to, to do or to not do. Um, in, in the passages that we read in the last theology pit, that's what it was kind of saying. It would seem that original sin has not tainted us to the point where we are crippled and have this type of, of inability. Um, which then allows us to not necessarily lean into Pelagius's view that, you know, we, we maintain our free will, that we, you know, Adam was just a bad example, but it also doesn't allow us to go full Augustinian with our view that there's nothing that we can do. We're absolutely dead. There's no way. It seems as though sin may have scarred us in a way, has made us sick in a way, but we still have a type of will capacity. These implications are, are pretty big. The entire Old Testament kind of seems to point towards the fact that we have some amount of free will and that we have the ability to do what God has said in order for us to merit his favor, to merit his grace. By doing the Passover meal, by doing that original Passover, the Israelites, well, I guess we should say, yeah, I mean, I think they were the Israelites at this point, um, were able to merit God's favor and escape death, have it pass over them. And it was important enough that God had them do this as a sacred rite every single year 
and to teach their children of it and to pass it on. And the way that they're thinking about it also is they're, they're thinking about it, excuse me, on a very personal level that this is not something that why do, why do we celebrate the Passover? Okay. If that's the question that gets asked, why do we celebrate the Passover? The answer is not because we are to remember what God has done for our people in the, when we were slaves in Egypt. And that's what it's for. This question of why do we do this is put in the liturgy of the Passover. It is to be asked by a young child within the family. He is to ask the older man, the male, why is it that we do this? And the answer is also part of the liturgy. Okay. In chapter 13, verse eight, it says after, after, uh, well, I'll go back to verse six here and kind of refresh us. Seven days you'll eat unleavened bread. That's the feast of unleavened bread. And the seventh day, there shall be a festival to the Lord. Throughout the seven days, unleavened bread shall be eaten. No leavened bread shall be found with you and no leavened bread shall be found in your territory. And you shall explain to your son on that day. Here's the explanation on why we do this. This is the explanation right here. Chapter 13, verse 8. It is because of what the Lord did for me when I went free from Egypt. Notice those, those words there. It's not what God did for our people. It's what he did for me when I went free from Egypt. It's a spiritual connection that is, is made during the Passover celebration, during the Feast of Unleavened Bread, that is pushing the Israelites to this day, the Jews to this day, to have this understanding that there is a spiritual connection that's going back to the Passover, not just a physical, but a spiritual, okay? Now, we have a spiritual connection because of our faith that's been given to us in Abraham or in Abram at this point. And Paul tells us that in Romans. And we know that we are spiritually in line with the remnant in line with the people of God and with this liturgy that we keep in our head, the implications are by doing what God says, we are able to find favor with him. If we don't do what he says, we do not find favor. That is what's spelled out. That is what makes the understanding that I've put forth of justification by faith alone for Christ's sake through faith. Such a radical idea. The completion of it from the book of Genesis that God will take care of everything. Even the application of it. All these things that 
we're doing during the Passover here, all the things that are happening, this is done to look forward to what Christ has done for us and what he was doing. Now, at the same time, there seems to be an importance in what we do, but there's also an emphasis going on New Testament-wise of what God has done for us. And nothing we can do apart from God. All of it's, it's impossible without God. With Christ, all things are possible. Without him, nothing is. Now, there's another aspect here that I haven't brought up yet that I, I, I want to talk about. And that has to do with um, the bread. Okay, the concept of bread. Not the unleavened bread here. But if we move forward in the book of Exodus... We have uh, the um, bread from heaven, okay, the manna. Now, this is bread that whenever they 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 left Egypt, okay, they're they're out outside of Egypt, okay, um, and they were hungry, and you know they were grumbling about like, oh, what should we eat? What are we going to eat? Like, you know, blah blah. blah. Um, what was happening is then God started feeding them in verse four, chapter 16 says, the Lord said to Moses, I will rain down bread for you from the sky and the people will go out, uh, and gather it each day, that day's portion portion that I may, uh, thus test them but uh, to see whether they will follow my instructions or not. But on the sixth day, when the apportion, when, when they apportion what they have brought in, it shall prove to be double the amount they gather each day. Okay. Which means they just gather what they have for the day, but on the sixth day, it's going to miraculously last two days. Okay. Um, Remember, we have this, you have this understanding of bread of heaven, okay, coming, coming down. And I want to stress that, bread of heaven uh, understanding, because in John 6, we're going to revisit that. We're going to revisit a lot of this stuff in the Gospel of John, okay? But if you think of, you know, the, 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 the prayer, give us this day our daily bread, Here's where we're getting that that understanding from that imagery from. Even Protestants will, you know, will will say that within the uh, Lord's Prayer. Um, and you know, the the test was, of course, that you know they had to do it and see who would do what and like what was going on for it. But again, you have this idea that you have the ability to do it. You can go out and do it, and by doing so, you're meriting God's favor. Okay. And it's a communal thing that's going on here. So with this manna that came down, this bread from heaven, this was seen as very important. In fact, it was seen as so important that they kept a jar of it and they put it in the Ark of the Covenant. Okay, Ark of the Covenant had you know, a few different things in it, but uh, manna was um, 
was one of the things. And you see that in um, uh, verse 33 of uh, chapter 16. So as Moses said to Aaron, take a jar, put one omar of manor, manna in it. And omar is just a, a, the measurement that they were using. It's uh, the, I think it's the day's worth. And uh, place it before the Lord to be kept throughout the ages. Okay, so that's why they carried it around with them. All right, now for 40 years they ate this manna. All right. They also ate quail, you know, that, that would come down. So they were being fed meat and bread. And this was supernatural. It was supernatural f- meat and it was supernatural bread. Okay. Within the New Testament, Jesus is pulling on all of this Im- imagery that we're talking about. All right. The gospel writers are reminding us and they're using language that is following what is happening here, what's going on. All this stuff from the Exodus, all the stuff from the Passover, God's deliverance, that is what is taking place. Another thing I want to point out here is that in all these situations, if you don't do these things, you die. If you don't eat the manna, you die. If you don't eat the quail, you die. If you don't do the Passover and put the blood on the doorpost, you die. If you don't eat the lamb, you die. There is a very real, tangible emphasis to what's going on. If you don't do these things, you will die. This is very powerful imagery for us. What does this mean for us whenever we're then presented with this idea that Jesus has fulfilled this and then instructed us in the same way to do these things? Do you see the, not the appeal, but the natural gravitation towards a sacramental system, a, a system where God's grace is being infused in you and you're being saved through it, the spiritual connectedness, the physical sustenance of partaking of the Eucharist, the concept of meriting God's favor. It's not that people are saying, well, we do these things uh, to merit God's favor because we want to usurp God in any way. But we do these things because God has specifically commanded it. That's the big difference. We're doing this because of Christ, because of his raising from the dead. We're doing this in remembrance of Christ. The Seder meal, the Passover meal, is done in remembrance of Christ. The Upper Room Discourse, that was the Passover meal. And that's what Jesus is saying. Take and eat. This is my body. This is my my blood. He's changing 
the Passover meal, making it more full like he does with everything and all this imagery that we're talking about. He is fulfilling it. He is the substance behind it. The, the, the realization and he is now taking it and transforming it into what we have. Now, when you take a type and shadow from the past and you, you change it or Christ changes it, does it become less or does it become more? Well, we would say it becomes more because it's a fulfillment. Well, if it becomes more and it's a fulfillment, then it would necessarily have to be more than just a remembrance, more than just a Passover meal, more than just bread and more than just wine. Necessarily, somehow, it has to be so much more than that. Now, when somebody sins in Israel at this time, they would have to have a sacrifice. They would have to make a sacrifice. They would, the, the, the head of household, the, the, the man of the house, on his behalf, he's a, a headship in a way, a, a federal head in that, in that way, in his house, would have to make sacrifices for his family. And he would go out and he would make these sacrifices and he would go to the priest. And this is the idea. This is the, the image that's being passed through here. Okay. He would then take out whatever the uh, sacrifice for the sin required. And let's just say that, you know, this is for his family that he's doing. And, you know, he's, he's going out and he's sacrificing an animal. And he gets with the priest. And what he does is he lays his hands on the head of the animal that's bound up and that's laying there to be slain, completely helpless and completely innocent. And he's confessing all of his sins, all of his family's sins, everything in front of the priest, making that confession and putting his hands on the lamb. And then the priest, while his hands are still on there, slaughters the animal, slits its throat, and it, it dies. And you feel it dying. You feel it going away. This animal is dying because of what you've done. This sacrifice is, is happening because of you. Because of your sinfulness. Because of the sinfulness of your family. You've just confessed your sins to in front of a priest. And the priest has then made the sacrifice. And you now have the assurance that the sins that you've confessed have gone into this animal. And it's now a part of this animal. Okay. The animal then needs to be consumed. Half of it is put on the altar to be completely burned up. And by burning something up like that, then that is God consuming that part of it. So God is consuming the sins of you and your family. The priest has to then eat this animal 
he is now consuming all the sins of you and your family, taking them into himself. You transferred your sins of you and your family to this animal. He is partaking of it, eating it, and becoming what those sins are, holding that in his body. Now, depending on how many people are in his region, all of these people are coming to him and he's eating all of these sins, giving you absolution and eating all these sins. And then he gets to go to another priest, one that's higher up from him, one that would have um, uh, be in charge of, of priests in a certain area. And the same thing would occur they would then put all the sins of the people in their area into an animal and this priest would eat it. And maybe he has six or seven priests under him. Okay. So now he has six or seven jurisdictions worth of sins in him. And it just goes up the chain like that until you get to the high priest. And once you get to the high priest, once a year, he would then put, all of the sins of all of the people into a lamb without spot or blemish. And he would slaughter these lambs because they're all coming to him. Okay. And all these people, you know, all this stuff, he's slaughtering all day from all these priests that are bringing him the animals. He's covered in blood, completely covered in blood. And then finally the Paschal lamb is, is slain and that blood is then taken into the Holy of Holies, the Ark of the Covenant is, and it is sprinkled on the Ark of the Covenant. Um, the animal is, is completely burnt up. None of it's consumed. It's completely burnt up. And it's as though at the end of the day, God has taken the responsibility of all of the sins from his people. Now, is that really happening? I mean, are you sinless now? No, you're not. But that's the image that's trying to be given. That by partaking of this, you're becoming what you eat. And that it's going up and ultimately God's going to take care of it. Again, the Proto-Evangelium from uh, Genesis uh, chapter 3 that we talked about in the last theology pit. And so, with this happening we're getting a better understanding now of Christ's role as the lamb of God who comes to take away the sins of the world. But notice the imagery that kind of jumped up trying to keep Roman Catholicism in your mind. I'm trying to keep the, uh, uh, the sacrament of confession in your mind. What do you do? You, you go and you tell your sins to a priest. He doesn't forgive you for your sins any more than this priest does, but he gives you absolution. Absolution through what Christ has done, the redemptive work of Christ. And penance, if you have any penance to do, anything that you have to do also. Because if you say that you're sorry, that's you know one thing. If I if I break out the windows in your car, tell you I'm sorry, you know, and you say, Oh, you know, that's okay. You know, I understand how that is. Um, and then I just think, okay, hey, I'm just going to walk away scot-free. And you're like, well, no, if you're really sorry, you're going to fix the windows. 
if you're real sorry, if you're not sorry, you won't. But that's what being sorry means. So you get this absolution, just like this priest done by, you know, slaughtering the animal. And he's, he's letting you know, and he may be carrying these sins around with him, but ultimately he knows that Jesus Christ, our Paschal Lamb, has been slain. He doesn't have to hold on to it any more than you do. You've been forgiven. Your sins have been forgiven in Christ. That's what's occurring here. That's what's going on. So that imagery, again, is part of the sacramental system, part of this satisfaction view in this sense. Anytime there's anything that's considered sin, a sacrifice has to be made. It's always been like that. We know from the book of Hebrews and from the book of Revelation also um, that Jesus is not only our high priest, but he's also bought us with his own blood. He is also our sacrifice. He is able to constantly give himself for our sins. He is able to constantly do this. In the book of Revelation, um, when uh, there's a scroll that has seals on it that are to be opened, I think it's the four seals, um, nobody is found on heaven or on earth or under the earth that's worthy to open it. And John begins to weep. And the angel says, don't weep for there is someone. And he turns and he, you know, he says the, the lion of the tribe of Judah is able to do it. And that's what Christ is called. And he turns and he looks and he sees a, a lamb as though it's been slain. And he is worthy. The imagery that John has of Christ is a lamb that looks as though it's been slain. A sin sacrifice in the state of forgiving. This is, oh, I'm bumping the microphone here, genuflexing more. This is why this understanding is, is so important for liturgical worship, because this is what's going on in the liturgy. All of these things. Now, I want to, so there's so much going on here. Um, I'm, I'm trying to get you to understand everything about the, the liturgy that's, that's happening, all the imagery and why it's, it's being put in place. And a lot of times, I've, uh, well, I said the majority of the times here that I've, I've spent, I've been talking about the liturgy of the Eucharist. Okay, the importance of it, all this stuff about you know bread and 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 lambs and eating it and actually eating the real presence and that sort of thing. You may think, well, I've been to a liturgy, and well, what about the procession in the beginning of it? What about the way the altar's set up? What about like all this stuff? I understand that's the the liturgy of the word, and there's the two liturgies, and I'm I'm not going to go over that. In, in this because, again, I'm trying to focus just on the application of the atonement. I'm trying to focus on um, the, the idea of justification, of, of being made right with God. Now, 
we understand that the blood of sheep and oxen and goats and any other animals, okay, it's, it doesn't blot out sin. It doesn't, it doesn't really forgive us of our sins, okay? And we can understand that. And I think maybe on some level in the Old Testament, they understood that, but they act as though they don't really confess that. And maybe, maybe I've said that wrong. Maybe they really did believe that. They, they didn't understand how. How could the life of an animal be the same as the life of a person? You know, it's just, you know, it's, it's impossible for it to take away um, any type of sins. And that's why this idea of a promised redeemer to come, that God would make everything right in the right way, and that someone would come, someone who's called like the Son of Man, would come and straighten everything out. Now, when Jesus came on the scene, you're in a fiercely monotheistic society. Okay, they have totally turned their backs on all other gods. They will not worship any other gods. They won't even entertain the concept of any other god. Because of the necessity of understanding that there only is one God, I think that that is part of the reasoning that God takes his time with humanity. Some people have said to me, why isn't there just a rule book? Or why isn't it just spelled out that this is what we should believe? Or this is what we should do? I would say because a mind convinced against its will is of the same opinion still. Heard that a while ago, and it still holds true today. You can't force somebody, let alone an entire people, let alone an entire worldview, to accept something just because you said it. Whenever God appeared to Moses in the burning bush, and Moses said, who shall I say is sending me? It's always translated as, you know, tell them I am is sending you. Um, Sometimes the I am that I am or the idea that it's the I am that 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 I am goes on forever. The being one, the one who is, the one who exists. But the understanding that's coming out of that I am statement is from what the um, my my Jewish study Bible has uh, you know, said in some of the in, in the ways that the Jews have understood it is not so much that I am or I am here, but it's of something more, and that something more is what I'll discuss right after this. Thanks for listening to The Theology Pit. 
Do us a favor and check out our website at samsonstick.com. Tell us what you like or what you don't like and consider making a donation. Just send a buck to show your appreciation. It's more than just money. To us, it's an encouragement. samsonstick.com. Thanks again. Now back to the show. The I am that God is talking about is the I am, you will know me by what I will do for you. You will know me by what I'm going to do. Not by what I've done at this point, but Yahweh means I you will know me, uh, who I am, because of what I am going to do. And this is at the beginning of the book of Exodus. Okay. So the name God, the word God, has different connotations with different people. And if we ever get into theology proper and into certain apologetics on, you know, proving the existence of God and the, the concept of Godness and the attributes of God and what makes God God, this is what he's saying. You will know me by what I am going to do, not what other people say about me. I'm going to define myself. That's what Yahweh is meaning what I'm going to do. He even harkens back to that in the book of Isaiah when they want to go after other gods and things like that and stuff. And he says, tell them, look at what I've done. Ask them, these other gods that they want to follow, these other gods they think are real, um, what, what have they said and then brought to happen? I've said things and I've brought them to happen. I've proved who I am. That is my namesake. I am the one who transcends time and space. I am the one who acts. Okay, I am. Not that I just exist. Not that I am just this being. But ultimately, who I am in relation to you and in relation to myself. This is the I am that I'm speaking of. This is Yahweh. And you can understand why it can be so offensive to God for people to break the first commandment of having other gods before him. You know, he said, even, look, I'm God, and even I don't know of any other gods. You know, and, and the second commandment, taking the Lord's name in vain, saying God said something that he didn't say. God says things and they happen. God makes things be in place. God says things and it occurs. He says, let there be light. Light leaps into existence. The universe leaps into existence. He says that you're righteous and you are. You know him by what he's done. Not by what we think of him. Not by what we say about him but what he testifies to about himself. And within Yahweh is Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. The Father may be speaking of this is who I am, and the Son and the Holy Spirit 
testify that that is true. Two more witnesses. This is why, again, Paul used two witnesses to show that we are justified by faith. Now, we're getting this idea, we're getting this understanding of being able to merit God's favor and being able to work out our own salvation and having this full understanding from the Old Testament and even moving it into the New Testament a little bit. So now with all of this in mind, let's check out John chapter six. All right. And this is what I've uh, kind of titled, nicknamed myself, the worst sermon that Jesus ever gave. Because after he gave it, thousands of people walked away from him. Now, if you're in a church and there are thousands and thousands of people that have come, and I mean 5,000, 6,000, and you guys are feeding all of them, you're doing all these good works, you're doing all kinds of stuff, and then your pastor gives one sermon and everybody leaves except for 12 elders that are there. And even them, even them, they're not real sure. They don't know. Jesus feeds 5,000 people in, in, in John 6 here. And then he goes on to talk with some of the... Um, Pharisees and Sadducees and some of the people and that sort of thing. And um, in, in chapter six, verse 25, um, well, let me, let me skip down ahead here. Um, they start uh, 26. Well, now I guess I'll go to 25. It, it starts the unit of thought here, which is called a pericope. Um, it says, when they found him on the other side of the lake, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you get here? Jesus replied, I tell you the solemn truth. You are looking for me, not because you saw miraculous signs, but because you ate all the loaves of bread you wanted. Do not work for the food that disappears, but for the food that remains to eternal life. The food which the son of man will give you for God, the father has put his seal of approval on him. So then they said to him, what must we do to accomplish the deeds God requires? Jesus replied, this is the deed God requires. Believe in the one whom he has sent. So they said to him, then what miraculous sign will you perform so that we may see it and believe you? What will you do? Our ancestors ate manna in the wilderness, just as it is written. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Then Jesus told them, I tell you the solemn truth. It is not Moses who has given you the bread from heaven, but my father is giving you the true bread from heaven. For the bread of God is the one who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. So they said to him, sir, give us this bread all the time. Jesus said to them, I am the bread of life. The one who comes to me will never go hungry and the one who believes in me will never be thirsty. But I told you that you, um, I told you that you have seen me and still do not believe. Everyone whom the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will never send away. 
For I've come down from heaven, not to do my own will, but the will of the one who sent me. Now this is the will of the one who sent me, that I should not lose one person of every one he has given me, but raise them up on the last day. For this is the will of my Father, for everyone who looks on the Son and believes in him to have eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. All right, now the Jews become hostile. Verse 41 here. All right. And they start complaining. What do they complain about? Okay. I read all that stuff to you and you're just like, okay, well, the bread part was all in the beginning. And then he gets down to all this like belief stuff and everything. And you know, the resurrection and eternal life and like all that stuff. What do the Jews hear? They get hostile and start complaining because he said, I am the bread that has come down from heaven. What is they stopped right there when he said in verse 35, I'm the bread that I'm the bread of life. You know what? I'm the one who comes down from heaven. I'm, I'm, I'm the bread that God's given. And they just tuned out immediately to all that other stuff. And they start saying to themselves, verse 42, isn't this Jesus, the son of Joseph, whose father and mother we know? How can he now say, I have come down from heaven? Jesus replied, do not complain about me to one another. No one can come to me unless the father who sent me draws him. I will raise him up on the last day. Notice how Jesus says he will raise him up on the last day. It is written in the prophets, and they will be taught by God. They will all be taught by God. Everyone who hears and learns from the Father comes to me. Not that anyone has seen the Father except the one who is from God. He has seen the Father. I tell you the solemn truth. The one who believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your ancestors ate the manna in the wilderness, and they died. This is the bread that has come down from heaven so that a person may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats from this bread, he will live forever. The bread that I will give you, that I will give for the life of the world, is my flesh. That's cannibalism. They are freaking out at this point. This manna that has come down, this supernatural food that they're going to eat, Jesus says, yeah, that's, gonna, that's my flesh. All right. The Jews got hostile with him right, in verse 52. And they began to argue with one another saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? You know, and Jesus doesn't back off. Okay. It's not like, whoa, you didn't understand. I mean, metaphorically, like what I mean is that, you know, my, my, my flesh is food in the way. No, he doesn't do any of that. Okay. He ups the ante. He gets, he, he makes it even worse for them. He says in verse, uh, in chapter six, verse 53, Jesus said to them, I tell you the solemn truth, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in yourselves. That's barbarism. That's cannibalism. That's, that's what Leviticus specifically condemns the drinking of blood. Why? Because people were drinking blood to get the, the spirit, the life force of, of an animal or something in them. All right, that's what they're consuming. And now Jesus is saying this. He already said, eat my flesh. And now they're like, what? And now he said it again, eat my flesh and drink. But this time he had to drink my blood with it. You know? Verse 54. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life, and I will raise him up on the last day. For my flesh is true food, and my blood is true drink. One who eats my flesh and drinks my blood resides in me and I in him. Whoa. 
when the New Testament was written, you did not have exclamation points. You did not have punctuation. It was it was written in all capital letters and just, you know, one right after the other, just, just spaced out. You didn't have that type of stuff. If you wanted to emphasize something, you would say it, uh, you know, three times. Okay. You know, you would say uh, holy, 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 or whoa, 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 or, you know, something like that. Like, you know, when you're reading it to get it across, oh, this is very important. This is something they're saying. He says this four times in four different ways. Okay. The life of this world, the bread that I will give for the life of this world is my flesh. Tell you the truth. You eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood. The one who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. My flesh is true food. My blood is true drink. One who eats my flesh and drinks my blood. I don't know how else to get a point across. If you're trying to tell me that he didn't really mean for us to drink his blood and literally eat his flesh, gnawing on his flesh. That's how you could translate some of this. Literally. Chewing on his flesh. How could you write it that it would say exactly that, that you would accept? There is no way. This explicitly is coming out and saying that you have to eat the lamb. You have to eat the lamb. If you don't, you will be dead in your sins. Death will not pass over you. You don't have eternal life. He's saying that unless you eat the flesh of the Son of Man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Because whoever eats the flesh, eats my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life. And I will raise him up on the last day. You have life eternal, not life temporary. Not like life temporary they had in Exodus with the, with the, with the Passover. Not like life temporary they had in Exodus with the manna. Life eternal but you have to eat the lamb. This is so problematic for them. And he says, continues on to say, just as the living father has sent me and I live because of the father, so is the one who consumes me will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. It is not like the bread of your ancestors ate and then later died. The one who eats this bread will live forever. Mic drop. That's hardcore. That is not going back. That is not saying, well, I'm talking metaphorically or I'm doing whatever. In light of what we have from this concept of the Old Testament... People are reading this. People are understanding this. They're doing their liturgy like this. They are partaking of communion in the first couple centuries based largely on the liturgy that they've gotten from Paul. Okay. Paul even says, I give to you what I receive from the Lord. He didn't get his understanding of um, the words of consecration that we see in, um, in, in the book of Corinthians. In, in 1 Corinthians um, chapter 11, verse 23, um, Paul says to them, For I received from the Lord what I also pass on to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night in which he was betrayed took bread, 
And after he had given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, he also took the cup after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this every time you drink it in remembrance of me. For every time you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Now, he also says in, in verse 27, as a side note, I'm going to throw in here, for, the re, for this reason, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and blood of the Lord. And that's why a person should examine himself first. Um, it's kind of legal uh, writing there in, in what's going on. It's almost like in a, in a court of law um, that you um, are guilty of the body and blood of, of murder if, if you're doing that. But... When Corinthians was written, it's before the Gospel of John was written. They're taking this understanding not from John, but from the Old Testament, what they knew of the Passover, of what they were going on, the, 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 the eating the, the Passover lamb, that you know we're told that this is the body and blood of Christ, that this is the Passover. Now, when Jesus said, you know, do this every time you do this, do this in remembrance of me, he said it at the Passover meal, during the Passover. The Passover has some very interesting elements in it. It has the four cups that are that are drank. Now, when it comes to these uh, four cups, you have to understand like the meaning uh, behind the cups during the Passover in, in what's going on with Christ here. So what's taken place with these four cups is during the Seder meal, during the Passover, you have these four um, I wills, so to speak. Uh, I will take you out. I will save you. I will redeem you. I will uh, take you as a nation. Okay. Each cup is one of these I wills. Okay, so the first one is called the Kaddush, okay? It's said over the first cup, and it's, it's sort of a way, uh, like a prayer to like formalize that the meal is taking place, okay? And that will be the first cup of wine that you drink. The second cup is the I will save you, okay? And that's where um, like the story from Exodus is, is read or retold um, from the, I believe it's pronounced Haggadiah. I'm not sure if I'm even pronouncing that right, but that's over the second cup. Okay. While people are drinking the second cup, that's what's being told. And it's about eight ounces. Each cup is roughly about eight ounces of wine. Okay. And it's, it's, it's kosher wine uh, that's used. Um, and then after that, the third cup is called the, I will redeem you cup. Okay. It's the grace that is given over the meals. You recite, it's called like grace after meals. Okay. So during the third cup, this grace that is given. Okay. And that is drunk during this time. And then the fourth one is called the Hallel. Okay. And then it's, it's, it's Psalms and hymns, praise to God. It's, I think one Psalm 114 through 118. And that, that, that is sung. And after that is sung, the fourth cup is then drunk. Now, what makes these so very, 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 very interesting is during the Last Supper, what Christ is doing, uh, he skips out on the fourth cup. Okay, he totally is, you know, skips out on I will take you as a nation. He, you know, he is, he doesn't partake of the fourth cup. 
Okay? He does the I will take you out one. He does the Exodus, I will save you one. I will redeem you. Um, this is, you know, where he's breaking the bread and saying, this is my body, you know, take and eat. And, and the cup that then is taken over this, it said, this is the cup of the new covenant in my blood. Okay, so this, there, you know, and then that cup is gone around and that is, is drunk over this meal, this particular part of the meal, this eating and drinking. Um, now, let me, let me get into one of the um, uh, uh, Gospels so you can see what's, uh, what's going on. We'll kind of talk through this here. All right, so in the Gospel of Matthew and in the Gospel of Mark, um, they are primarily, Matthew's writing to primarily Jewish audience, so they're going to be more sensitive to this type of liturgy than in the Gospel of Luke, who is a Gentile, and he's writing to Theophilus, um, so this may be missed on them. But if you go to Matthew uh, 26, uh, chapter 26, verse 26, and you also find this in Mark chapter 14, verse 22, um, it says, while they were uh, eating, Jesus took bread and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to his disciples and said, take, eat, this is my body. And after taking the cup, given thanks, he gave it to them saying, drink from it, all of you. This is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many for the forgiveness of sins. Now, remember what we talked about just a second ago, you know, the redeeming, the third cup was the, the cup of redemption, okay? And it's after they, you know, drank the cup from the Exodus story and what they were talking about there. So he is directly lining himself up within the Passover meal here with this particular cup with himself, that is the redemption one. The one that we looked at from Exodus, whenever, you know, it, uh, um, you know, the father says to the son who is asking about why do we do this? And he says, well, you know, because you've been redeemed, you know, um, and, uh, I forget where, where that was in, in Exodus, uh, 13 or somewhere around there. And we talked about that and he's talked specifically about redemption and you've been redeemed. My son has been redeemed because of the Passover lamb, because that's happened. Jesus right here is pointing to the fact that he is the Passover lamb. Okay. And that this is his, um, body and this is his blood. Now, um, John, written after the Synoptic Gospels, uh, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, uh, is kind of filling in the rest of that. And I think that's why his emphasis is so much in that in, in chapter six. But pay attention. <clears throat> Sorry, I'm kind of going off on a rabbit trail here. Now, let's, I'm getting real excited, as you can tell. All right. So he says that this is for the forgiveness of sins. I tell you, from now on, I will not drink of this fruit of the vine until the day I drink it new with you in my Father's kingdom. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. All right, stop right there. If you are a good Jew, and if you're somebody who's just paid attention to what we've talked about, it says that they sing the Hallel Psalms over the fourth cup, and then they drink the fourth cup. Here, they did not drink the fourth cup. They sung the Hallel Psalms, and then they went out and they left. They're just gone. It's, it's a botch in the liturgy. It's like Jesus screwed up the liturgy. He totally screwed it up. Like a lot of Jewish people would look at that and say, there's no way he could have been Jewish to mess something like that up. I mean, that would be like, okay, if you're a Protestant and you go to church and they say, hey, we're going to take communion and they get everything out and they, you know, go through, um, you know, first uh, Corinthians 11 and they say, you know, on the day night he was betrayed, he took bread, he broke it, you know, did all that stuff. And then they didn't 
pass out the elements at all. Okay. They didn't do anything. They just dismissed you and said, okay, peace be with you. Go. Church is over. Get out of here. Everybody would everybody would say, oh, wait a minute, excuse me. Nobody drank any grape juice and nobody ate any, you know, uh, bread or crackers or wafers or whatever. No, we did. We forgot. Yeah, you, you totally pastor. Excuse me. You forgot to do that. That's how obvious this is to Jewish uh, people. To, to, the, to the Jewish liturgy. That's how, how much it is. Now, Matthew is based off of uh, uh, Mark. He used Mark as like an outline whenever he wrote. Here's what Mark has to say. While they were eating, he took bread, and after giving thanks, he broke it, gave it to them, and said, take it. This is my body. After taking the cup and giving thanks, he gave it to them, and they all drank from it. He said to them, this is my blood, the blood of the covenant that is poured out for many. Again, Redemption. This is the redemption cup right here. I tell you the truth. I will no longer drink from the fruit of the vine until that day when I drink it new in the kingdom of God. After singing a hymn, they went out to the Mount of Olives. Again, this is the Lilla Hillel Psalms. Um, Hillel uh, just means uh, praise. It's where we get the uh, word um, hallelujah from. Uh, hallelujah, praise be Yahweh. Hallelujah. Uh, praise be Yahweh. So that's that's where we're getting this, um, you know, this understanding of this these Hallel uh, Psalms and and what they're talking about within the uh, within the Passover here. So um, what's going on? I mean, people are noticing this. They're looking at this that they sung these hymns and then they just left. They just went out. There was no partaking of the fourth cup. Now he says, "I'm not going to you know drink of it again until I drink it new in the kingdom of God." When does the kingdom of God come? Okay, he's hanging on the cross. He's been flogged. He's beaten. He's riddled with pain. On the way there, they try to give him wine mixed with myrrh, and he denies it. He says, no, I'm not going to have it because I'm not, you know, I'm not being glorified. I'm not, you know, I'm, it's not the time yet. Okay, so he's on the cross, riddled with pain. Okay, he's dying. He's asphyxiating. His heart is being constricted. And he then says, I thirst. Well, you think that he just wanted a drink at that point? No, he's partaking of the fourth cup. He is partaking of this uh, understanding as I will take you as a nation, the fourth cup, what that means. Okay. There, and, and it's becoming a nation, becoming a people, becoming a one people, uh, people of God. And so he tastes it, and they happen to have some wine there, soured wine, okay? It's almost like a vinegar, but it's a wine that's there. And they put it on a sponge that's on a hyssop branch that was used. Hyssop branches were what was used to put the blood of the lamb on the doorposts for the, for the Passover, the first Passover. And they give it to him, and he tastes it, and he says, it is finished. And then he dies. The imagery here is so powerful in what's going on. So whenever we're talking about Christ's atonement and what it is, it's as though he held himself in his own hands and sacrificed himself. He finished the liturgy on the cross. The fourth cup was drunk. The kingdom of heaven is now here. We have it within the church, within Christ. God's grace is freely given through the church.
Now, I'm going to close the theology pit here right now, and I hope that with these two that that we've gone through, this one and last week's, that you have a better understanding of the satisfaction view of the atonement and and the um, the, uh, uh, sacramental view of the atonement and and what it means. I didn't get through everything that I wanted to, but hopefully I touched on it enough that next week I want to talk about um, these meritus implications of it and how then this atonement gets applied to us today now that Christ has changed it and historically what was done with it and kind of the reason why Martin Luther was looking at these things and saying they might be being abused. We might be using this wrongly. We might not be understanding this. But, you know, those are kind of like the, the big things that I wanted to pull out, you know, with the, um, uh, with, with the, the, the Jewish liturgy and the big um, sections I guess you could say of of understanding the the original Passover meal that you know the the four big things that you just have to keep in mind okay is is that there had to be a sacrifice of an unblemished lamb okay it was a year old with them okay one that was with them for roughly four days three and a half four days Jesus was with the apostles roughly three and a half years four years depending on how you count it um, they had to dip a branch of hyssop in the blood of the lamb. Okay, a hyssop branch was used to be dipped into the wine, and then that was given to Christ. The third thing is that the, that blood was had to be spread, the blood of the lamb, on the doorposts. Okay, and you know on the on the home as as a sign. Christ's blood is then put on us. Okay, we are covered by the blood of the lamb because our federal head, our high priest, has done this for us in our behalf. And finally, we have to eat the lamb. Those were the main points of Exodus. And within Roman Catholicism, and with this understanding, you have to eat the lamb. And it has to be the actual Passover lamb. All of these things actually have to take place today. Okay. Christ fulfilled all of them in what he did in his work and the it is finished of this understanding of redemption in a way was all the way started at the beginning of the Passover but there's still one thing left to do and that is to eat the lamb and drink his blood so that we will have life in him in John chapter 6, again, to kind of finish up this whole questioning of this is a hard saying. This is difficult for us to um, to, to understand. Um, in chapter 6, verse 67, Jesus said to the twelve, you don't want to go away too, do you? Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom would we go? You have the words of eternal life. We have come to believe and to know that you are the Holy One of God. Even they wanted to leave. Chapter 6, verse 66, it says, After this, any of his disciples quit following him and did not accompany him any longer. Everybody left. Nobody could handle what he was saying. So how is it any different today? This is a tough one. 
but this is the importance of the understanding. Now, when I get into the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement, I will touch again on um, the, the Eucharist, on communion. Um, again, I am not a Roman Catholic, so of course I don't agree with this, but I hope I was able to represent it passionately enough and um, uh, you know, with enough credibility that this is, this is believable. This is understandable. I, I understand why people believe this way. I really do. It makes a lot of sense. It does. Um, but again, I think that it's missing something. I think that it's incomplete. If I didn't, I would be Roman Catholic, obviously. But I'm going to pause here, and I think that we may, in the next bit, just kind of revisit the satisfaction view or the sacramental view a little bit more just to kind of sum some things up and just put some things in perspective. And then we're going to move on with the, um, the next big view that came on, which is the vicarious substitutionary view of the atonement. And this uh, came out of the uh, German Reformation. So I want to thank everybody for listening. I really appreciate it. I thank you very much for being supportive of the Theology Pit. Uh, you can find more information at um, samsonstick.com. Uh, you can um, you know, visit me there. You can send me an email, samson at samsonstick.com. Visit me on Facebook at The Theology Pit. Or um, here's another thing you could do to help me out. Pass this around to all your friends. Tell your family about it. Tell people about it. I'm not bashing uh, denominations on this thing. I'm not bashing views. I want us to completely understand and contrast this clarity. We need to have this uh, type of understanding. So uh, thank you very much for being a part of the Theology Pit, and I think now is a very good time to close down the pit.